Well, Stephen, I know why you love Newfoundland. I've been here nary 48 hours, and I'm starting to love it too. And very grateful for the opportunity to be with you today and to enjoy this very auspicious occasion. Uh, I was warm sitting out there. You would not offend me if you took your jacket off, gentlemen. Uh, I don't know if that's protocol or not, but I just want to give you a, you know, please don't pass out. It would be much better to attend to the Word of God than passing out. Uh, and I'm very grateful to be here for an induction. I just think this is a sweet time in the life of a church. We are brimming with optimism at occasions like this, and that's a good thing. Uh, but the best of men are still men at best. And so our hope is not in Steve. Our hope is not in the elders of this church. Um, our hope is in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against his church, his precious bride, the people of God. I am very, very grateful that in his word, God includes instruction for these men who serve as pastors. He tells us who they are to be. He tells us what they are to do. And he tells us how they are to do it. And tonight, I want to focus in on one particular verse. I'd invite you to open your Bible to 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first uh, six or seven verses there, but I really want to look just at one verse as a call to you, Steve, and to your fellow elders, and to me, and to every other pastor in the room, of which I think there are a few. So listen as I read for you from God's Word, beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight, I want us to focus in on this last verse, and I really do draw your attention, brothers Paul and Jeff and Daniel and Steve, to this verse because I think it applies to you as it applies to me. Verse, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, there are some ways in which this scripture immediately relates to us. There's ways in which it does not. I won't belabor those. But you, Steve, you share with Timothy a similar spiritual heritage in your family, just as Timothy did. And there came a time in your life when God graciously opened your heart to that gospel. Somehow, 
in his great providence, he chose you out of these people in Newfoundland and he set his love upon you so that you understood that God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised to life. And you put your confidence, as many here have put their confidence in Jesus Christ alone. I I trust that's what you have done. There has come a point in your life when you have realized, you've looked in the mirror and said, I need a savior. And you put your confidence in Christ alone, not in being a good enough person, not in earning God's favor, but in simply looking to Jesus, renouncing all self-reliance and embracing what Christ did on a cross for you. That's what Steve did. That's what the elders of this church did. And so we are like Timothy in that way, who perhaps saw the Apostle Paul receiving beatings and heard the preaching of this man and was gripped by God to believe the gospel that that man preached. You are like Timothy in that you share similar gifts. On the day he saved you, He gave you the person of his Holy Spirit, Steve, to dwell in you. And he also gave you gifts to be used in his church for the good of his church. He does this with every Christian. Now, there was a council of elders that saw the gifting of pastoral ministry in Timothy. And these elders, along with Paul, laid hands on him. And when they did, or prior to it, we're not sure, they were also given a word of prophecy concerning his life. Now, today, the prophets are silent, but the Holy Spirit is not. And by putting this desire into your heart to be an elder and by confirming your giftedness through the elders of your local church and the members of this church, we are 100% certain that God has called you to this ministry. And in the words of Paul to the Ephesian Christians, you are now a gift to this church. So you are a gift and you have been given a gift. And you are also like Timothy in your need to exercise that gift. I like to make bonfires. I go to my mother's cottage and I build a fire. I love to do it in the spring when you've got to gather up all the stuff that's fallen and all the seaweed and and a lot of it's wet. And you know if you've built a fire that that fire will quickly die out if you're not always poking and prodding and throwing in some dry stuff and getting something to get the wet stuff to burn. Well, Paul writes to Timothy that the gift that he was given by God is much like my fire. It will not extinguish as long as Timothy lives. The gifts of God are irrevocable. But it can smolder away and become more smoke than flame, fogging up the area with choking clouds. For this reason, Paul says, I remind you in verse 6, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Timothy's gift, given as it was by apostolic hand-laying, still needed to be fanned into flame. He had a responsibility. How much more your gifts, my gifts? If, If that man had to fan it into flame, how much more us? Earlier, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect it. Fan it into flame. Brother, fan it into flame. Do not neglect it. These these warnings mean that you and I, we can do this very thing. An untended fire grows, throws little light and little heat. And in Timothy's case, it seems that that he was a, a man who struggled with the fear of man. 
a, a cowardice that flowed out of shame and embarrassment tied to the gospel, and that was perhaps fueling this neglect of the gift that he had been given. And this man had an ample supply of fear triggers. I mean, imminent persecution. It was always around the corner. Sophisticated false teachers abounded all around him. It looks as if Timothy might have not been altogether healthy, might have worried about his ailments. So Paul would write to him, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments persecution, grumpy old men, false teachers, sickness. There was a lot of things for him to be afraid of. But to all these possible causes of fear and shame, he's given one answer. And Steve, you're given that same answer. Whether it is the fear of hurting someone, the fear of looking badly, the fear of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, to all these triggers, every pastor is offered this one word. And I want to preach that word to you, brother. I want to preach it to me. I want to preach it to all those who are called by God to shepherd the people of God so that God would give us grace to fuel some gospel courage in the execution of our ministry. So this I would call the fire of pastoral courage. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let me make two big observations. The second one will have three little points under it. But the first big observation is this. Remember what the spirit does not give. Remember what he does not give. Galatians chapter 5 does not say the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, fear, patience. It's not there. So Paul says, God gave us a spirit not of fear. That means that any fear in you and any fear in me is man-generated. It is sin-generated. It is a symbol of our fallenness, not our righteousness. It is evidence of our spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Now Saul, as Brother Paul alluded to earlier, hiding in the baggage, Saul was a tall and handsome man, not unlike me. Well, at least on the tall part. And he stood head and shoulders above everybody else among the people of Israel. And when they saw their king, this is what they said. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. But where was Saul before they brought him to the coronation ceremony? He was hiding in the baggage. He was afraid. Now you're a fine looking young man, Stephen. <laughs> And people look at you, they say, there's an intelligent, friendly, full of good works kind of guy. And all that pressure to perform, to not disappoint people, may tempt you to hide in the luggage, to duck back behind books or administration or fellow elders. But that's the fear of man, and it's not, it's not a mark of God's powerful spirit. It was not humility that took Saul to the baggage, but disbelief that gave birth to the screaming child, fear. Saul had already been assured by God that the sovereign Lord of the universe would be with him. He'd been anointed by God to this ministry. He'd been given confirmations of this through circumstance and prophets and people. He was called to be king, not coward. And you've been called, every elder's been called, not to a kingship, but to his ministry. The eldership is an office in God's church that requires you to serve by leading. And you lead by example. Yes, but you also lead by word and action. 
The best kings in Israel's history led their troops from the front, not the back. If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, and you remember King Theoden who comes to the rescue <laughs> and with his mounted troops goes up and down the line, his sword clashing against their swords, and leads them in the cheer to the death because that's what it looked like. It didn't look like there would be any way out. It looked like there would be no deliverance. Leadership, if it is anything, is taking people where they don't want to go but where they need to go. And that is what God has called the elders of every church to do. There is no room for the faint-hearted in the leadership of Christ's church. And by taking on this ministry, you are inviting, at some point, persecution and suffering. You're offering your life to the king as one who will go into battle when someone has to. And so you might as well decide now not to fear. Jesus was in a boat once where he calmed a raging storm. And after his disciples woke him, before he calmed the storm, he said to them, Why are you afraid? Now that might be a good poster. John, there's a, there's a good poster to make. Those are lovely, by the way. Make another one that says, Why are you afraid? And put it in the elders' room, wherever they have their meetings. Why are you afraid? The sovereign Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, He's got this. He's got it. The more fear controls any ministry, the less the Holy Spirit is at work. There are plenty of worldly reasons to run away in shame and tremble in the corner. There's never a spiritual reason. God Himself has removed all our triggers to fear because He's removed the greatest risk known to mankind. Death. And by conquering death, He conquers fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So the presence of God's Spirit and the gifts of His Spirit in us are not the gifts of fear. In Paul's words, God has not given the elders of this church the Holy Spirit of timidity. He has not given them the cowardice spirit. He's not given them the Barney Fife spirit. Remember Barney? Okay, maybe nobody remembers Barney. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but, but he says, those lovely little adversatives in your Bible, but what has he given Luther captured it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, to separate us, to tear us apart, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. This body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Ours through Christ our Lord. Now, tell us about the Spirit and the gifts, preacher. Okay, I'd be happy to. Thanks for asking. So, remember what the Spirit does not give. The Spirit does not give fear. Second big point, rely on what the Spirit does give. Rely, pastors, rely on what the Spirit does give. What does He give? He gives power, love, and self-control. These three. The first thing, 
power. The Spirit gives elders power. Or what you might, you might translate this to get the sense of this word, ability. Ability. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that we Christians would have our eyes opened. Okay, he's talking about Christians. This is what he prays for a Christian. That your eyes would be opened to see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So Paul is saying, you know, you don't quite see it all yet. If you really saw the, the level, the extent, the expanse of God's power required in your salvation, it would blow your brains out. So I'm praying that you would understand this, that you would see it. And the longer we follow Jesus, the more we understand that that resurrection-like power was required to bring us from unbelief to belief. The same omnipotent ability to raise sinners from death to life is the same power with which Jesus rules over all creation now for the good of you, for the good of his church. And since the Holy Spirit is equal in every way to the Father and the Son, it is the same power that marks Him and His gifts to Christians. If we fear, it's not because we lack power. Now, there's such a silly thing in the world as this thing called power religion. I call it silly because I don't think you'll find it in your Bible where people get all in a lather to, to stun the world with great suns, signs and wonders and, the, and all their little tricks. But that's not what I'm talking about here. The Spirit is not out to wow people into the kingdom. He's much more powerful than that. Think of how the Holy Spirit shows His power. I'll give you several ways. One, He brings the dead to life. He makes Christians. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You were washed, said Paul. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the Holy Spirit, you want power? Here's power. He makes dead people alive. He kills sin. In Christians, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He assures Christians that they really are Christians. Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, the internal person, that we are children of God. He also improves the prayers of Christians. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray, or we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He gives Christians gifts in order to serve other Christians. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He teaches Christians the truth. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not he doesn't have ability. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually, by the help of the Holy Spirit, discerned. So if you stop and think about it, you will see that everything God is calling pastors to do in their ministry, every single task they are charged to do is something that only God himself can do through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So if you, as a pastor, as an elder, decide to do ministry in your strength, your success rate, guaranteed, is a big, fat zero. Apart from me, you could do nothing. 
Who can save a sinner and make him a Christian? Who can put sin to death in a Christian? Who can give assurance to a Christian? Who can give a supernatural gift to a Christian? Who can improve a Christian's prayers? Who can teach the truth to a Christian? Well, you, but not you. Which is why Paul said this, him we proclaim, Colossians 1.28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's me, but it's not me. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That's, a, that's what I want on my tombstone. <laughs> he worked harder than any of them. That's not all I want in my tombstone. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It was a conscious choice on Paul's part to model for us the very things we most need in Christian ministry. A life on fire, not with personal energy or programs or self-advancement, but rather a life set on fire by having been in the presence of God's glory. A, mi a holy minister, said McChain, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. By awful, he meant what we would probably today say awesome. Brother, whatever your particular fears and misgivings, you may be certain of this. The devil will do everything he can to remind you of them. <laughs> he will pry them against you. He will try to trip you up through them so that you will be tempted to seek a comfortable ministry in a comfortable church on a comfortable chair behind a comfortable desk in comfortable loafers. And they're called loafers for a reason. <laughs> so, are you and are the elders of this church willing to face those fears, to cry out for grace and for strength when those fears rage against your souls? And will you step forward in faith when gravity itself seems to be pulling you back? God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but of power. Secondly, God has given you a spirit of love. The spirit of love has given you love walk by the spirit said paul galatians 5 16 and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the fruit of the spirit is love it's other things too but the first thing it is is love paul would write to timothy in chapter 1 verse 5 the aim of our charge our whole ministry can be summed up in this way the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy, but set the believers an example in love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. Power without love is a dictatorship. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How did he love us? He gave his life for us on the cross. 
what is true for every Christian is true in particular for those who are called to lead. In his book called Leading with Love, author and pastor Alex Strout writes of an elder he met who in many years at one local church had been, and I quote, physically choked, punched, had his jaw broken, been spit on, cursed at, falsely accused, and threatened with a lawsuit. I don't think that's going to happen here. (laughs) But what if it did? Would you elders grow disillusioned with God, bitter in spirit, abandon the hard work of ministry for some soft, comfortable little gathering of people who think just like you? You see, love, Christian love, by definition, does not mean soft little clouds and easy sailing. To, to, To love a sinning Christian can be one of the most frightening things in the world. Are you pastors prepared to call back the wayward husband, to rebuke the arrogant false teacher, to plead with the wandering teenager, to have your motives questioned, to be represented unfairly, to know things about people that you can never tell anyone except the Lord in prayer? Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love never ends. Faith, hope, and love, these three, faith, hope, they come to an end. You see, God, you don't need faith anymore. You don't need hope anymore. It's all realized in the great coming of Christ. But the one thing that goes on is love. We will continue to love one another and our love for him will expand forever and ever and ever. Praise God that he has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love. And then this third thing of self-control. The third quality that Paul highlights to timid Timothy is Self-control, some Bibles would translate it, and this might be a little more helpful of the sense of the word, a a sound mind, a a level-headedness. There are times in the life of any church where, uh, to use the phrase, all hell breaks loose. And and I, I use that phrase purposefully because we are in a spiritual battle. And there are times when Satan and his minions attack whether it's for the chastening of the church or the humbling of the church or the refining of the church, God permits troubles to settle in on a local assembly. The gates of hell will not prevail, but they'll do their worst. I was talking to a young man who was in the military and he told me about some of his training in early boot camp where you'd be sound asleep at night and then they would throw a few stun grenades into the room and have live ammunition firing over your heads and you were supposed to you know, react the right way. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how I think I would react. That happens in the life of a church sometimes. Recently I met a pastor in the span of one week. He found out that his associate pastor was going to die that his own wife had cancer and a large doctrinal controversy had been brewing in his church for months that he knew nothing about and it all became exposed in the same week. That's a bad week. Two weeks before, everything was calm and pleasant. Now it was all bombs, shells, and rockets. I haven't been around sheep a lot. I have been a little bit. The first church I pastored, there was a real-to-life shepherd and I loved him and I liked to hang out with his sheep, but I never could get near the sheep because sheep are skittish creatures. And if you're not the shepherd, they'll have nothing to do with you. Sheep are easily frightened. 
And there is nothing worse than a shepherd who flees when the enemy approaches. You got to be that David who grabs the lion by the beard and fights him barehanded on behalf of the sheep. The shepherd who chases down the bear before striking him and killing him with a smooth stone. The one who looks back at the trembling congregation and then into the face of the cursing giant and says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly, these believers behind me, that they may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. The Bible, have you noticed this in the story of David and Goliath, that Every day Goliath came out and cursed the Israelites and every day for weeks on end they ran away from him. Cowardice, panic, fear, confusion until along comes this ruddy boy who kept his wits about him and he preached the truth of God to his own heart and then he acted like it was true. When the Philistine arose and came And drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Such the Lord calls you to, Pastor. Calculated risk and leadership in the midst of panic. You were not given a spirit of cowardice, but one of power and love and a sound mind consider your blessings brothers consider your blessings count them you have been saved from sin you have a godly heritage you've been given a christian wife beautiful children a church that loves you and affirms your gifting and to all this he has added the holy spirit who has gifted you to make you a gift to this assembly and all of this assembly i believe joins with me in saying to the elders of this church fan it into flame brothers And let it burn. Do not waste this precious gift. The days are short and the days are evil. Lean in on the bellows cramp. Pour on the fuel. Poke and prod and push that fire until it blazes in Newfoundland so that your life is marked with power and love and a sound mind. Fan it into flame. flame. Let it burn and consume you so that men see Jesus, not you. Die to self and let the firestorm of his presence work through you to bring light and heat to this church and to this city and to this province. Flee youthful lust. Man up to the ministry to which he's called you. Love your wife like Christ loves his church. Train your children the way God trains his children. Preach as if you handle the very oracles of God. Serve with humility, with the same humility with which Christ came to earth to die. Labor more than all the rest, but not you, Christ in you. Flee fear. Walk in in power, love, and a sound mind from the Holy Spirit, and then lay down your life and die and hear the precious words, well done, good, and faithful servant. Brother, this is the call on your life and on the lives of the men of this church. But may I say just a few words, just a few. I mean, it's maybe a little long, but I'm leaving tomorrow, so you can't, you can't be too upset. 
just, just, just a few little words to you, the members of this particular church. Really one word, and that word is love your pastor. Let me give you seven ways to love him. I'll do it fast. Number one, love his preaching. He may not be the most remarkable preacher you ever hear. I heard something about that last night. <laughs> I cannot find a single text in the Bible that tells me that he should be. I see many texts in the Bible that tells me he must be faithful. And I can tell you that nothing will encourage his deep study and prolonged faithfulness in this pulpit more than a people who love to hear God's word. And if you love his preaching, you should tell him, you do not need to worry about you know, building him up, building him up. God's going to do enough to bring him down, bring him down. There are too many other things in his life to pop that bubble. So you just take it upon yourself to encourage the man, to love his preaching, to help him and strengthen him so that you, you tell him how God is using his preaching ministry in your life. What's more, if you love his preaching, you will pray for his preaching. And what will happen in this church if every member of this church started their Lord's Day mornings by praying for their pastor? God bless his preaching today. That's number one. Love is preaching. Love is wife. That's number two. Now, this is an easy thing to do in this particular case, in this particular church, but it is not always so. In Jane Austen's book, Emma, you may know the character of Augusta Elton, the pastor's wife. I love how Jane Austen describes her. She is a boasting, domineering, pretentious woman who likes to be the center of attention and is generally disliked by everyone. Well, praise God, that is not your problem. How blessed you are to have a pastor who can say, I may not have done a lot of smart things in my life, but I know I did one thing really, really well. <laughs> I married her. And let me tell you a little secret, friends. One great way to have a happy pastor is to have a happy pastor's wife. And few things will encourage your pastor more than when you love the one he loves most of all. So you remember her. And you remember that she helps to carry his load, but she's not paid to do it. And she enables him to be hospitable, which he must be in order to be qualified to this office. And she carries the brunt of raising faithful children, which he must have in order to preach. So you honor and you love this woman. You don't deserve her, but you got her. So thank God for her and you pray for her as well. Thirdly, love his children. If you're going to love this man, you will truly love his children. You'll not judge them. You'll not hold them to some higher standard. You will expect them uh, you'll expect that they need to hear the gospel as much as every other child in the church. There's not some little pastor track to heaven, pastor's kids track to heaven. They need to hear the gospel too. You're not going to be fooled by their Sunday school answers. You'll not demand that they all become pastors and deacons. You will simply love them for who they are. Love as children. Fourthly, love them with your complaints. If you love this man, you will learn to come to him in all humility and you will speak privately to him of your concerns. You will not make snide remarks or gossip or spread disunity or hold resentments that spread into gangrenous bitterness. When you truly love someone, you can come to them quietly and submissively with honest questions and self-searching that allows for disagreements to lead to agreements. Love them in your disagreements. Fifthly, love him when you don't understand him. It is an odd thing to be a pastor. 
we become involved in the intricacies of others' lives, and sometimes we know things about others or a situation that we simply cannot divulge. It would be wrong for us to. And often it is in these times when misunderstandings grow. Why aren't, why aren't we doing this? Why don't, why don't we stop doing that? Where were you when this happened? Why didn't you come when we asked? How come I have to wait so long to meet with you? <laughs> Friends, if you love him, you will hope all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things. You're going to assume that he's wise in the use of his time. You will expect that there's things he knows that you don't need to know or you can't know. And you will bless him even when he seems to go in a direction that you find less than compelling. Because you love him when you don't understand him. Six and then one more. Love him for a long time. Love never ends, right? And there is a curse on the pulpits of Canada. I want to be careful here because I realize that you've come from Prince Edward Island back to Newfoundland. But there's a curse on the pulpits of Canada where the average pastorate in Canada is less than two years now. You can't know your people in less than two years. And you can't shepherd them. I understand why you came here, and I'm behind it. I'm one of the guys cheering from Toronto saying, go, brother, go. But I'm saying to you, now that you got them, don't let them go. <laughs> See, a wise church is going to do all she can to keep that man for a long time, not just putting up with him, but loving him. And they will see the value in those long-stay ministries that build trust and confidence. Finally, love him because God loves you. But see, the final and great motivation to our love is never what it gets us. True love is seen in Christ. Therefore, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God, like beloved children. If you've had kids, you know they, they, they pick up all these weird things you do. <laughs> they become like you. They're imitators. Well, here's Paul saying, be imitators of God, your heavenly Father. As beloved children, what's God like? What will it look like? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Did you catch that? Copy God. Do what he does. Be like him. Love one another, yes. But love your pastors. Love your elders. And then may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with your elders and with you all. Amen.